This week's episode contains some swearing, including three F-bombs. Hello, Dr Neil Buttery here. Welcome to my podcast, British Food of History, Lent. We're on episode four already. Where does the time go? This week, we're looking at the natural history of Lent. All the strange and wonderful behaviours like magpie marriages and mad march hares, as well as the plants that begin to appear, lift our spirits a bit, because they're telling us that spring is here. Now, anyone who reads my blog would know that I get a fair amount of natural history in there too, and this podcast shall be no different. I'm going to be talking to Brenda Smith of Bud Garden Centre in Burnage, Manchester, and Matthew Cobb, Professor of Zoology at the University of Manchester. Now, usually at this point, I'd be talking about the week in Lent or something, but to be honest, there's not much going on. It ramps up a bit next week, though. So instead, I'm going to do a little history spot about the dumbing down of Lent. Setting down the rules of Lent was tricky, and there were many disputes and differing views. This is because early scripture wasn't precisely clear. Now, there was no mention of a fast that lasts 40 days straight, so some decided to do it in shifts, three or four days a week, stretching Lent out over many weeks. Some people took the scriptures to mean a 40-hour day, in other words, a 40-hour fast. It was a bit later on when we got to Latin translations from Greek, where people start reckoning it should be 40 days without any breaks. People were taking interpretations of 40 literally, but coming out with different ways of doing things. But here's the thing. The word 40 was often used just to mean a general, non-specific, largish number, just as we might say umpteen. So really, it meant some non-negligible period of time that was enough for you to think it was a good job well done. Later, we got a bit of a middle ground with six days fasting, with the Sunday off. Our approach to Lent has waxed and waned over the years. It is an imitation of Jesus' own fast in the wilderness, and in early medieval times it was pretty strict. No animal products at all, and that included fish. People would have eaten just one meal, and it was expected to be the staple of the time, bread and water. Lenten bread was made up of drage flour, a mix of barley, oats, and sometimes wheat, and often pea flour, which was usually fed to horses. Pope Gregory wrote to St Augustine, our very first Archbishop of Canterbury, saying, We abstain from flesh, meat, and things that come from flesh as milk, cheese and eggs. Pretty straightforward. You can't really argue with that one. It's been estimated that you'd have eaten around 500 calories a day. Today, if a reasonably active person is trying to lose weight, it's suggested they consume around 2,000 calories. Life was tougher then, and work was hard. No mod cons making light work of everyday tasks. And historians reckon that folks needed to consume about 4,000 calories a day. So a 40-day, 500-calorie fast was called, perhaps unsurprisingly, the Black Fast. It wasn't long before things got a wee bit more relaxed, though. Fish were sneaked in because they were cold and wet. And cold, wet things restored the balance of the four humours, as we know. Dairy produce was also allowed in, but only if you're doing pious work. It has been suggested that the eating of fish was really brought in when the Normans, headed by William the Bastard, swung in in 1066. They simply did not want to cut down on the meat and feel hungry during Lent. They were such carnivores that fish was granted to them in an effort to tempt them away from proper meat. 
As we move into Tudor times, the basic rules were held, but they had started to get a little out of control. There was still a no-meat rule, and some people were still being strict. There are stories of poor men turning themselves in at court because they had faltered and eaten a piece of bacon. In 1543, Henry Howard, Earl of Surrey, was dragged into the king's court for flagrantly eating meat. Mealtimes were solemn occasions. There were no frivolities like gesturing, plays or jousting. Instead, psalms were sung. Even at Henry VIII's table, a humble pottage was served up. This humble affair was made from spices including saffron and imported dried fruits. Compare that with a peasant's pottage of cabbage water and barley groats. Lent was far from being the great leveller it was intended to be. Fish was on the menu, of course. Oh, and by fish, we mean anything that lives in water, frogs, whales, and even beaver. Uh, it's got a scaly tail like a fish, so that one's allowed. Catherine of Aragon was particularly partial to porpoise. Henry himself tucked into lobster and stargazy pie. Here's what they ate for one meal during Lent in 1534. Soup, herring, cod, lampreys, pike, salmon, whiting, haddock, plaice, bream, porpoise, seal, carp, trout, crabs, lobsters, custard tart, fritters and fruit. And that was just the first course. The fact custard crops up in that list means that eggs were back on the Lenten menu. After his split from the Roman church, he started making many exceptions. Eggs were now honorary fish, making chicken fish too. When Henry's son Edward became king, he even let meat back on the menu. Now, the Tudor dynasty were prone to some religious, hmm, toing and froing, to put it mildly. When Elizabeth I was on the throne, and people were more of a Puritan disposition, meat and chicken were taken off. Now, this wasn't for purely religious reasons, and it certainly was not because people preferred Pollock over poultry. No, she did it for political reasons. She realised that all this meat-eating was causing the old fishing towns to disappear. If she outlawed meat, then these towns would prosper again, and there would be, scattered around the country's coast, a ready-made team of veteran seafarers, you know, should a great big armada turn up or something? Fast forward a century and a half, Oliver Cromwell has deposed the Stuarts and he's lording it up as Lord Protector of England. He was known for his ruthlessly puritanical ways, but an odd thing happened. Lent didn't become more strict, it was done away with altogether. He believed that there had been so much rule bending that it had just lost all of its meaning, and fasts were denounced because it had nothing in value for the health of a man's soul. If people wanted to fast, that was fine. Lent at your own leisure. Just quit harping on about it whilst eating a face full of custard tarts. The Puritans also hated all the other pomp, ceremony and partying that was also going on. So other holy days were ditched. The big loss was Twelfth Night, the last day of Christmas and the big party day. The Twelfth Night cake was banned a rich fruit cake, as was the fruity marzipan Easter simnel cake. Though, with a cheeky sleight of hand, they were later combined to form the Christmas cake, which is traditionally eaten on Christmas Day. 
And you can't ban Christmas Day, the birth of Jesus Christ himself, otherwise what's the point? Ah, oh, there's always a loophole. Other things that were banned included rings in marriages, the term priest, confirmations, prayers for the dead, and curtsying at the name Jesus. That last one sounds fair enough. That must have got pretty annoying. Strict fasting never really came back after the Puritans got rid. In 1960, Pope Paul VI declared that meat was only prohibited on Ash Wednesday and Good Friday, which were apparently the proper fast days of one meal and two modest snacks. A far cry from the Black Fast. I wanted to do an episode all about ecology and natural history of the animals and plants, because it's where a lot of our symbolism comes from when it's Lent and Easter time. First, I spoke to Brenda Smith of Bud Garden Centre. I've known Brenda for quite a while now. She's very sustainability and ecologically minded and owns an excellent small garden centre called Bud. So she's perfect to speak to about plants at this time of year. Now, one of the reasons that I wanted to speak to you on the podcast is because quite often you and I meet up for a drink. And one of the things that we often talk about is the wildlife that we've seen. We're both a bit geeky in that respect. So one thing, of course, that I'm talking on my Lent podcast is the fact that uh, people aren't eating because <laughs> it's Lent and they're fasting. One of the reasons for that is that there's not much food around in the first place. You don't have Lent in August mm. when there's loads of food. When it's, uh, when it's harvest time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Talking to people in the previous episodes about how there was nothing to eat. But actually, is that true? I mean, have you got anything growing on your allotment that survived the winter, that you can eat throughout the winter? We've been eating kale and cavalinero, you know, yeah. black Tuscan kale. Lovely. It is, it is starting to flower now. That might be a little bit earlier than normal. I don't know because we've had a very mild winter. Mm. You know, yeah, it's maybe just been one decent frost back in November. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think that's um, that's one of the reasons. Um, and of course, I think a few years ago we wouldn't have had the the flowering. Bits. Not not the tree flowers themselves, which are yellow and lovely, mm-hmm. but you know the actual oh, like, flower. Yes, yeah, like little sprout flower yeah. thing, whatever they call well, them. Well, they, they people eat them now. They're trendy. You get them in artisan shops. You do. Um, They're really it, expensive. They are expensive, <laughs> but it it's interesting, isn't it? That kale used to be just used for animals. It was animal food, mm. and yeah, and, and poor and people, very poor people. Yeah. But now uh, the middle class have latched on, haven't they? And uh, yeah, I do find it comical how good they are at making things trendy and cool mm-hmm. and uh, and then making them expensive. Uh, you know, I'm not criticising, it's just it, it's just an interesting phenomenon. We could probably have been sowing stuff a bit earlier and getting it in the polytunnel. And right, so the polytunnel makes a big difference. Uh, yeah, it makes, difference. it makes, um, yeah, it's, it's quite a lot warmer. I don't right. know how many degrees. A big impact is that it keeps it, it keeps the soil dry. Mm-hmm. And a big problem, I think, with growing in Britain now with climate change is that it's very wet. And, yes. and Manchester is quite clayey. So you've got cold and wet soil. Mm-hmm. And that is just, it's a double whammy. You know, seeds won't germinate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they just rot in the soil, yeah, don't they? Plants yeah, plants rot. Yeah. So you can get quite a bit ahead. Do you reckon it adds on a month or six weeks? Yeah, a or month. something like that? So we've got our kale. I guess there's other brassicas, maybe? It's purple when... sprouting broccoli. Of course, purple sprouting broccoli. Yep. Again, mega expensive. Be- mm. Because it's not 
a prolific plant. Mm -hmm. So I think if you're growing it as a farmer, you need a lot of plants to, yeah. to get the pickings. And also it's a crop that's just stood in your field for a long, long time. So you sow mm, in I it. I try to grow it. It's a nightmare. It takes forever. It's like one and a half years, isn't it? Before you it's get It's not anything. quite that long, right. but it, but it's it's almost a year. And, oh, okay. and, and if you if you're you know if you've got a, a small patch, you don't want to be taking that amount of land up with just this crop that takes mm -hmm. a year. And, and quite a lot of a broccoli plant is stuff you can't eat. It's very very um, fibrous. Mm. Yeah. You've closed bud for a couple of months. Uh, for January and February, and then you reopen in March. So I was thinking, well, is anybody even going to come? Because is there anything to do? There's loads. I mean, it's not. Again, you've got you've got to look at the weather. Mm. You, you know, you look on a packet of seeds, and it said so in March. But mm -hmm. if, if March, we had beast from the east a couple of Marches oh, we ago. We did. But we're sat, sat at your big window now, and it's sunny. It's quite warm. Yeah. And you can sow seeds now of most things. I'd say. I sow a lot of my seeds under cover anyway, mm -hmm. e even even when it's a bit warmer, to protect them from the worst of the weather. So cold snaps at night, but really because of slugs. Slugs are a and nightmare. Slugs are a nightmare now. And the frosts aren't killing them off. No, nope. like they used to, of course. No, they just um, they just burrow a bit a bit deeper. They're, they're, lots of them live underground. Some of mm. the really voracious ones, and of course the eggs are underground as well, so they're protected. So you mm -hmm. need you need a period of very cold weather mm -hmm. to kill off some of the slugs and with uh, uh, green flies the same. Yeah, yeah. You know things aren't dying, but then you need to know which ones don't like being pricked out. That's when you take them out of a seed tray, separate them, and put mm -hmm. them into modules. Okay. The umbelliferae family hate that. So carrots, parsnips, they always mm -hmm. say so direct on the seed packets. Mm -hmm. Parsley, fennel. Mm -hmm. They, yeah, they, they have to be sown outside. So nothing much is actually growing. It's, it's a time of preparation yeah. for yeah, the is. bounties ahead. Yeah, we do grow stuff, but we also buy a lot of stuff mm -hmm. in from UK nurseries. Um, okay, and you don't ship them in for the from Holland. Is it Holland mainly? Italy. I knew it was from EU yeah. somewhere, but I wasn't sure. Yeah, they're very good at what they do, but I, I quite like the idea of, of um, working with UK growers. Surely the plants are going to be in better health because. They're in a UK climate because quite it's, it's yeah. a changing climate for plants. The shock of changing can often make them just yeah yeah. I it. mean, it's definitely warmer in Holland. Mm -hmm. It's not that far. It's a lot warmer than Manchester. It might not be that much warmer than the south of England, like yeah. Cornwall. Yeah. That's a different matter. Mm -hmm. It's not just that that climate, you know, that warmth effect. But I just I like the idea of just supporting local industry where you can, and I don't think British horticulture has it easy mm -hmm. having to compete with um, the Dutch who are very good at it. What we've got in at the moment are, we've got quite a lot of bulbs that we, we planted ourselves in peat-free mm -hmm. compost in October. We've got some miniature daffs, we've got tulips, and we, I find that they look so nice mm -hmm. and verdant and, mm. you know, full of promise that people buy them when they're just in the green mm -hmm. and with, with that promise to come. I'm just thinking of what else we're selling, but the, the garden centre is chocker. So pulmonaria with its white spotty leaves, that's looking really good now, the foliage, and it will start flowering very soon. Because there's not many flowering things. What else have we got that's in flower? So muscari, grape hyacinths are coming. Oh yeah, hyacinths, of course. I forgot about hyacinths. 
Um, they're bulby. They always seem to be kind of bulby plants that seem to yeah. grow first, yeah. don't they? Yeah, yeah, they do. We've got at the back of the shed at Bud, we've got the Cornelian cherry, which is Prunus mass, which has got bright yellow small flowers, followed by berries. That's finished already, and it's flowered at its normal time. Mm-hmm. It's those trees when the flowering, it makes me chuckle when people exclaim in a worried tone, oh, it's all gone wrong, the climate's wrong. Well, it, well, it is. The, the cherries are flowering now. Like, no, they it's do just, flower now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but they're being quite clever, aren't they? Because they're actually, uh, actually adapted to yeah. growing and flowering when nothing else mm. is. Especially the, I keep going back to it, the, the bulby. The, well, yeah, the bulby ones. thing. So things like cyclamen coom. So we've got a few different types of species of cyclamen. The ones that are hardy here, cyclamen hedrofolium and cyclamen coom. So hedrofolium flowers much like October. Mm-hmm. And cyclamen coom flowers after that, right through till now. And, and, and what they're doing at this time of year, they're taking advantage of the light they can get under trees before the tree canopy comes out. Because oh, once okay. the tree canopy's out... yeah. There's not enough light for them to flower. No, no, no. And then over the summer, they they sort of pull pull everything back so you mm. won't see them at all. And mm-hmm. they're just like a big round comb. And that comb will feed off the leaves dying back and then be ready to spring into action, mm-hmm. produce the flowers when the light levels are right, when the trees are... are, are so that's um, why they have bulbs, because they're basically storing yeah. things up over the winter, ready to spring up straight away. Yeah. They've done their photosynthesis... Yes. ahead of time yes. in the previous year mm. ah, i didn't know that then of course they've they've they need they've got the flowers they need those so that mm-hmm. they can um attract the scented as well the lovely cyclamen coom they can attract things that will help them make seeds yeah because you do often see the odd sort of big fat solitary bee bumbling around very early mm. that's probably about it so i yeah. guess that's what they're doing they're going to all the little crocuses mm. and I think, and of course, bluebells are probably one of the best examples of bluebells are coming, of kind um, of uh, exploiting that empty forest. Yeah, yeah and that's just... you get bluebell woods, don't you? Yeah, that don't seem to have a lot of competition because they're they're doing their thing before other things come in. Although aren't they all Italian or Spanish? No. What's so that? Hyacinthoides, Hyacinthoides non scripta is the English bluebell. So the uh, Hyacinthoides hispanica, I think, is the Spanish one. Because they've over- yes, overtaken a little bit. They are hybridising. Ah, okay. Yeah, it sounds xenophobic, doesn't it? But there, <laughs> there's um, there is a difference. Spanish bluebells are fab in the right place, but they're very invasive, and they get these big, thick leaves mm. that just crowd everything out. Mm-hmm. Whereas the English bluebell, even though they spread and you get bluebell woods, they're not aggressive. But the hybridisation means that. Yeah, they've got different characteristics. Mm-hmm. To be to be honest, I don't really know the impact, but yeah, there is an impact, isn't there, of anything that hybridises. Yeah, there's a um, hybrid vigour, is it called? Yes. So they do very well if your genes have grown up very far apart geographically. When you do meet up again, there's an increased likelihood of the offspring of being really fit and really yes. good, yes. whatever that means. Yeah. <laughs> In the case of a bluebell, I guess it means taking over a forest floor. So we talked a little bit before about getting ahead of time and using polytunnels and things like that do you have to kind of use things like hot rooms or have heated polytunnels or anything like that? Is, it, is it quite energy consuming getting so far ahead of the curve for you know a garden for center and nurseries yeah um, i don't think many nurseries would use supplemental heat 
except for seed sowing so a, heat, a heated bench we actually do buy plants from a lot of southern nurseries and that's just because they're peat free um, right that's something that's quite important isn't it yes the whole peat issue is a, is a big deal it's a hot topic yeah uh actually has been a hot topic in the horticulture world for a long time right like 20 years because basically peat comes from a peat bog yes and we we not me i'm not being involved in it i don't do it and i'm against it but big peat businesses mm. drain peat bogs and they scrape off the surface mm-hmm. And they put it in bags and they sell it to gardeners. And most amateur gardeners don't even know what they're buying. No. They what's, just... so, what's so special about peat that makes so, it such an important resource? So peat bogs uh, are habitats for whole manner of small plants, mm-hmm. uh, sundews and things like that. Um, of course, that goes on to support um, various insects mm-hmm. and probably small mammals. And I think the short-eared owl. Oh, okay, let's say birds are going to eats. love that environment, yeah. And it's by and large unpolluted as well, which is lovely. Yeah, because they're right in the middle of nowhere, essentially, aren't they? They are. Um, um, I don't know if you've ever seen some of the peat at the top of um, Kinder. Oh, right, no. Uh, that's a nice thing to see. And then you look at it and you want to cry when you think that it's just all taken off. and Maybe yeah. not from the top of Kinder, but, you know, low, low-lying peat bogs. Mm. But then what do we do? We just import it from Eastern Europe. Uh, oh, okay, so we're just passing the book. Yeah. 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 But I think for me, when I first started gardening and being interested in using another growing media medium, it was about the, the wildlife and it seemed very cruel to sort of destroy this these communities. They actually store water as well. And just Yeah. Once yeah, you... Yeah. Once you I guess that's why it goes into compost, because it holds onto the water yes, longer than, I exactly. don't know, regular compost or whatever. So it holds water. So when you drain it, where's that water going? Yeah. That water's got to go somewhere. And these places are vast. Um, and also it's a carbon sink. So Oh, of course. Yes, just because of all that life that's in there. Exactly. So you yeah. dig it up. What happens? You just get a big big release of carbon. Right. So it's pretty wrong on several levels, really, isn't it? Mm. What I've noticed when I go out to buy compost, I almost feel like it's a Hobson's choice. Because you look at all the packs and they've all got um, peat in there. So like, well, there's nothing I can do about it. I want to have my allotment and I want to, or whatever, I'll have my nice border. So yeah. and I need compost. I don't have two years to be making my own. It takes and a even, while. Even then, when you make your own, there's no way you can make enough. There's a lot of greenwashing going on because they'll, they'll then mix the, the peat in with something else and say mm-hmm. it's reduced. But often it's hard to find that information on the bag. Yes. That's it. And when we opened our the garden centre when I say we I, I started it with my friend Severine mm-hmm. and she left in 2014 to concentrate on her garden design business me and Sev just uh, from the get go we're, we're not selling peat mm. any peat composts and we, we never have since and we've expanded what we do but people can come in and know that whatever they buy in a bag mm-hmm. in fact n- not even in a bag now we do refills in a bag for life oh very good um, they know that they're just taking away something more sustainable. We mm-hmm. can't say it's 100% sustainable because everything we do has... And nothing's benign. Everything. We no, do it's just about properties. offsetting things, isn't it? Yeah. As much as you can. Yeah, yeah I, I like to uh, see myself as uh, educating people. and. It must be nice to know, though, for your customers, because you do get it out there, you know, that things are sustainably grown and peat-free, that if, if they are in a rush, is, well, those ethical decisions... 
been made for them. They yes. can just pick the one, the thing they like the most out of the selection and, and take it home. Yeah, I think we've got to a position in our business after nine years where people trust us to make some of the decisions for them. I spent ages looking for and nagging nurseries, you know, about about peat free. It must be very annoying because you, you, you've shown people that it can quite, I'm assuming relatively easily done without using it at all. It is. I suppose the the problem for some people is that um, is the price. It costs more. Peat is sold so cheaply. You know, why should any be, anything be sold so cheaply? Do you know, it's the, one of the most important things when growing plants is, is you growing media. Mm. Yeah, evolutionary bio- biology, evolutionary ecology in the last... Well, when I stopped doing it, so uh, about eight years, loads of research is done in this area now. The soil mm. microbes and how important yeah, it is for the whole of life to exist. Mm. We've only just got the techniques to be able to kind of mm. get all the DNA and the data and this, you know assemble it and assimilate it. And with, you know, people are just realizing that this is the most important thing. Well, Buddy is an amazing place on the Burnage Levensian border, isn't it? And uh, if anybody's listening from the north of England they should uh, try and pop over next time they're in the Manchester area it is great thanks Neil that's why I actually think I'm not just saying it because you're here that's why I've got you on yeah and and, I appreciate it and of course it was your opening weekend um, a couple of days ago Uh, so thank you for sparing the time because you're extra busy at the moment yeah no no worries Neil it's been a pleasure oh thank you very much thanks Brenda I've put up a link to Bud's website with a few photos up on the information page for the podcast at britishfoodhistory.com. Just click on the Lent podcast tab. You know the drill. Next, I met up with Matthew Cobb, Professor of Zoology at Manchester University. He was my PhD supervisor back in the day. Now, there's a wee bit of adult language in this interview, in case that's not your thing. There's also some pretty graphic descriptions of some of the horrible things animals do to each other, so it might not be a chat for very young ears. It was a bit of a meandering conversation and we covered a lot of ground including how animals know it's spring, crow's nests, how male robins and mallards really are quite horrible, mad march hares, sexual selection, the effect climate change is having on the spring and stoat attacks. Anyway, before we talked about any of that, I asked him what he, as a scientist, actually calls himself. Uh, I'm kind of an evolutionary neurobiologist. I'm interested in how nervous systems produce behaviour and how they can have been sculpted by evolution. And you're specialising particularly in... Maggots. S- maggots and how maggots smell. Yeah, I not what they smell of, but how mm-hmm. do they smell. But you're interested in kind of the whole yeah, any, smorgasbord any animal, of animal now. Does, I'm interested in how it does it. Yeah, then. sure. Um, and the reason I wanted to speak to you was because... Back in the beginning of my career as a PhD mm-hmm. student, we would go off to the south of France with the we zoology were. undergraduates. I did it for every year that I was here. Yeah, it's very nice. It was very nice. It was very good. And we actually ended up with quite a lot of time to spare once the students mm-hmm. were off doing their thing. So we would kind of end up walking around. Getting drunk. Getting drunk an awful wine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we kind of really got into the ecology because you in amongst the animals and the plants there. And we have to know a little bit about it because we're asking the students to get out there. So we kind of had to learn yeah. as we went. By the time we got to the third year, we for knew me, all about it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and a lot of the things that I see you tweeting about, certainly in the springtime, has shown me that you're very aware of what's going on here and what 
maybe kind of lifts your spirits, I suppose. Mm-hmm. That kind of everyday attraction of studying yeah. animal behaviour. I see you tweeting about swifts a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, swifts will be coming in middle of May. Yeah. They, so they come from Africa. Mm-hmm. What other things do you kind of what, see? List my heart. Well, yeah. the migratory birds... Well, two things. I mean, firstly, so you're talking about Lent. Mm-hmm. And Lent is a movable feast. Yes. And the reason it's a movable feast is that it's fixed on the phases of the moon. Mm-hmm. And that determines when Easter is, which is why it's sometimes early and sometimes late. So you've got the moon uh, going around the Earth, and it doesn't quite go in 365 days a year. So it ends up kind of out of sync, and then all of a sudden uh, the religious definition of when Easter is mm-hmm. suddenly shifts back because it's got to be so many moons after whatever. I don't, I don't know. What yeah, I, can never, sure I can't this keep will that be fact a, in my brain. I'm so sure this will be a, a, an extra pack on the side of the pod so you can explain that to people. Yes. So what that's telling us really is that Lent and of course Easter is linked in with the cycles of life, mm-hmm. in particular in the Northern Hemisphere, which sure. is where Christianity grew uh, and took root and yeah determines everything we think about it so really what it's about is goodness me this geezer dies and then he comes back to life again mm-hmm. and so the symbols we're going to have are bouncing lambs uh, mm-hmm. and lots of things to do with new life like eggs so yes. in fact what we're talking about for Lent and Easter is the confidence the reassurance that the promise we got in the winter when the days started getting longer at the solstice mm-hmm. oh it's, it's not going to be bad then we've they they kind of lie to you you know because it looks like it's going to be okay the days are getting longer mm-hmm. and then in january and february you get clobbered by the beast from the east and the snow and all that stuff so it's still pretty grim yeah if then, i just say it's kind of darkest before the dawn isn't it it could be it's probably it's the not most cold true, it's not dark it's no <laughs> but it's dark for about three hours before the door. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, it looks awful. So yeah. then you can be really confident that it is all going to be okay. Uh, the summer will be there because the day, not only the day is getting longer, but the, no, it's not the solstice. What's the next one? It's the, the next. The equinox. Bit, right, the equinox. There, the equinox is coming our way, mm-hmm. which is basically Easter. And then mm-hmm. we're all going to be, well, hey, it's going to be lovely and warm in the Northern Hemisphere. So, yeah, at the beginning of Lent, it's pretty grim. It's grim for people and it's pretty grim well, for, it, for they, animals. It, it is and it isn't. So already you can notice if you go out uh, early in the morning, which is not so early at the moment. So at the moment, uh, sunrise is about 7.40 mm-hmm. uh, in Manchester. And if you go out about then, you can, or you open your window, if you're near some woodland, you can hear the birds singing. The birds have started to sing. So the birds have already noticed the days are getting longer. They That's right. That. They've only got about 10 minutes longer morning and evening uh, in the first kind of two weeks because it takes a long time uh, because of the way that the Earth's orbit is around the sun. It's an ellipse and like, like, like a kind of egg shape. And we're right at the bottom of it and it's going to take a long time for it, mm. several weeks for it to start to really increase and then uh, the day length to increase but the birds have noticed that so they've got their little biological yeah. clocks because our clocks that we've all got are done by vision mm-hmm. so that's what sets your clock you know what well we know that you wake up when it's going to be sunny mm-hmm. um and the birds have already noticed that so the birds have know in as many of it as you want the birds <laughs> know that spring is on its way yeah 
They and also, that changes their behaviour, doesn't it? Because in the, yeah. in the winter time, they're hanging around in flocks yeah. because it's for foraging species, purposes, but, yeah. but most of the time. And yeah. then it's a big switch. They're all very friendly with each other, and then it completely changes. They start the shit out of each other, basically. Yeah. So you'll hear robins at the moment, depending on where this is going out. Robins will still be singing. Uh, but basically, this beautiful bird song, which we think is so lovely, mm -hmm. uh, is males saying, this is my place, don't come here, or I'll kick your fucking head in, you yeah. nasty little thing. Anyway, so the birds are... look at them the same again. <laughs> They're horrible. <laughs> They're violent. They kill each other. They're really... That beak, that really sharp little beak that's so lovely on your Christmas cards, mm -hmm. is not only good for getting insects, it's good for taking out the eyes of a rival. Really? Do um, go to that? Oh, yeah. Oh, they'll kill each other. Why? Because, hey, it's the most important thing of all. It's their genes. They want to pass their genes on to the next generation. And if the males need to establish a territory, that's what they're doing with all the singing. And what they can then do to the females is they demonstrate their fitness, their strength. Mm -hmm. the, and this must be in some way correlated with their genes in two ways. One, they're doing all this beautiful singing. Yeah which the females are attracted to. And secondly, by being able to hold a territory against the other nasty, mm -hmm. small, aggressive little mm -hmm. geezers, um, they can show that they're strong. And so the females can then flit in and out and think, okay, you're the one I'm going to mate with you. So that's what they're doing. They're basically fighting, fighting over women. But it sounds nice. So they've started doing that, establishing mm -hmm. their territories. Because you say over winter, it kind of, in the depths of winter, it kind of calms down. Mm -hmm. But now they can feel that that's going to come. And they therefore need to establish those territories. And they'll also, in about a month's time, start thinking about making nests. Sure. Yeah, I mean, obviously, one of the things that you really see are the big corvids yeah. flying about with big That's sticks in their mouths. That's crows, folks. Indeed. So you're going to have, what, come on, name the, name the UK corvids. What are you <sighs> going to get? Uh, magpies. Yeah. Crows. Yeah. Rooks. Yeah. If you're lucky, a raven. Very, un very unlikely, but a raven, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, what else is there? Oh, um, jays. Yeah. Oh, you're testing me now. Chuffs. Chuffs. Now, chuffs are those things with red beaks that yes. you don't get. I mean, you only get them, especially down in the southwest. You don't get them mm. around here. And I'm missing and an obvious missing. one. You're missing the, the, the big Jackdaw. The one Jackdaw, right. Jackdaw. So they're the things you see in huge, great big flocks. Mm -hmm. Absolutely loads of them. When we, you know, in the evening, and so they roost together. In the evening and in the morning, I see them. I can look out of my attic window, and we see loads of these things mm. billowing across the... You live in Chorlton, don't you? I live in Chorlton. Yes, right I, by the Chorlton East, yes, right by I used the, to, the Mersey. I used to live near the Mersey too and I had jackdaws living yeah. in my chimney pots that's right so they are, they're, they're much they're the smallest of all of them they're mm -hmm. really small and people often think they're crows because they know that you know crows or they're rooks rather they think they're rooks mm -hmm. rooks gather together but you don't get rooks like that in the A rooks are much bigger B you don't get them in the centre of well yeah in, in urban areas you can tell they're jackdaws A they're quite small B they go dak 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 mm -hmm. hence the name mm -hmm. they make that noise all the time and if you see them then yeah that's a jackdaw so uh, they're all making nests, and this this is what I find every year. I find absolutely mind-boggling. So they're going to start making nests in mid to late February, and if you look at something which you you'll be able to see, people will have near them. All mm -hmm. listeners will have this near them. They'll have a crow nest and a jackdaw nest. So um, you, sorry, a magpie nest, a crow nest, mm -hmm. and a magpie nest, mm -hmm. and you know the difference between them. One's black, the other's got black and white. Mm -hmm. You know got different calls and everything crows tend to be solitary or only in pairs there's an old country saying if there's one rook it's a crow if there's 10 crows they're rooks 
Oh, okay. I've never yeah. heard that before. I thought you were going to do the one for Sorrow 2 for Joy kind of thing. No, 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 no. So, right. basically, if you, if you get mixed up with green crows and rooks, if there's loads of them, they're rooks. And if there's only one of them, it's a crow. Anyway, the key point is that you'll see in urban areas, you get crows nesting. And just like in that old ship thing, the crow's nest is at the top of the mast. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you'll probably see the crow's nest at the top of a tree. And uh, magpies tend to build slightly lower down. But here's the really interesting thing. These two species, which are very similar ecologies, we see them in the centre of mm-hmm. towns that they hang about. So say magpies are a bit more social than crows. They make their nests, and somehow their nest is encoded in their brain because they make it instinctively. They don't need to learn to make it. Right, I see. And ultimately in their genes. And their nests aren't the same. Their nests are different not only in where on the tree they are, but if you look at them, a, a crow's nest is just a load of twigs put together. And a magpie nest is like that, but it's got a kind of hat on it. It's got a kind of a roof. Okay. And all magpies build the same nest, and all crows build the same nest. So somewhere mm-hmm. in their brain, in their neurons, is the sequence of behaviours to make that, and it's different slightly. And then even more unimaginably... Mm-hmm. In their genes are the DNA sequences that produce the neurons and the hormones that make them do that. And that we have not got the faintest idea how that works. And every spring, that miracle, that amazing thing Mm -hmm. is taking place outside our windows. I have a magpie that sits on my bedroom window and taps on my window and stares at me. It gives me the creeps. I tell the fuck off. Chases the cats. I don't like magpies. (laughs) I, get I mean, they're very clever, but they're very... I think they get a bad press. People blame them a lot for... I'll tell you, I'll blame them. I'll blame them, I'll tell you. About eight years ago, mm-hmm. the house opposite mm-hmm. had a uh, some blue tits nesting in uh, an air brick. So those bricks that are supposed to let the air circulate. Sure. High up, high up away from all the cats in the neighbourhood, there's a little hole in the air brick, and they were popping in, popping out, and they were... We, couldn't see the nest but we could see that the, and you get very were, attached when you could especially we when you can see them breeding so yeah, hard, yeah so hard and then eventually just like on spring watch the moment came in whenever it was may sometime for them to fledge the babies came out and mm-hmm. so the parents are sitting there on the telephone wires that are you know over the back gardens and the little birds come out and they flit from their little hole onto the telephone wires yep. and bang, down came the magpies and <laughs> every damn one of them. No. Oh, eight. Eight of them. Eight of them. Blop, blop, blop. No, yes, I've got to feel sorry for the magpies. No, I fucking don't. <laughs> Murderous bastards. <laughs> oh, it's funny, though, but all that kind of uh, all things bright and beautiful thing. As, well, soon, as, you, yeah. as soon as you learn about it, every, every living thing is horrible, isn't uh, it? Life is just stuff eating other stuff. With yeah. luck, it's already dead, but generally it isn't it's been life eating other things when it's still alive yeah and try to find like like you were saying like how a gene which essentially is a code for a protein generally how that in, transfers. in the end it's going to say where and when a protein is produced yeah, yeah. how that turns into behavior is just amazing so anyway. um, the venerable bead had a really nice statement venerable bead who's christian obviously and whatever it was eighth ninth century when the yes he crops of, up a few times in this podcast that's for okay. sure mm-hmm. one of the founders of english uh, christianity and he wrote that life was like he was explaining it to some king or some great lord he said life is like the a sparrow you can imagine a sparrow and we, you're in, in your hall your great hall the great mm-hmm. your castle your your palace it's full of light and warmth and the sparrow at night 
comes in through a window, flies through the warmth and the light, mm -hmm. and then it goes out again. Mm -hmm. and we don't know anything about before and after. Oh, that's very nice. It's good, that's very it? pleasing. That's, that's, that's what we've got. Yeah. We're simply this bird flitting through a huge sunlit or warm candlelit mm -hmm. hall before and after nothing. Oh. There you go. So let's enjoy nice. the, the warmth. And that's what we're getting in the Northern Hemisphere as yes. we roar around on our elliptical path around the sun. Yes. and it's one of those Back to spring. Back to spring. Well done. Even if no one's ever seen a hare in real life, everyone knows that there's Mad March ones, for sure. Because <laughs> they're running around, jumping about, having boxing matches. That's what it kind of yep. looks like. It's a good example of males really being annoying. <laughs> Because what I thought for quite a while, apparently it's quite a common misconception, the two hairs that are boxing, in inverted commas, I just think they were two males yeah. being territorial, a bit like yeah. you were talking about uh, Robins before. But it's not the case. It's the females boxing the males because they're so persistent. And if they were people, we'd be saying rapey now, but what, what would we say now? They're being... Um, forced copulation. Forced copulation. Because we, ha we can't be anthropomorphic, can we, about about uh, animals. The other ones are ducks. They're oh, really, ducks they're are awful, horrible. aren't they? They're mallards. Yeah, they're horrible. Yeah. They've got corkscrew penises as well. I thought oh. birds didn't have penises. They have oh, cloaca, yeah. don't they? They just rub holes together. No, no, no. Like, like a big, you know, like a set of marigolds. <laughs> Is that what they do? Yeah. Put it out and stick it in. Yeah, give the, you go and do, Google duck penises, folks. Not safe for work, but... Once you get home... Oh, I always thought birds never didn't no, no, have willies. No. Dinosaurs had them too. The so, males are pestering the females. The females are going piss off and biffing them back. Yeah, which seems like an odd thing to do from a point of view of if you're a male and you're wanting to make babies. Sure, you've got to be persistent and look the best compared to other males, but you're shooting yourself in the foot by being well, annoying. part of the problem with knowing why things are happening is that it's very difficult to do good experiments to prove your hypothesis and the temptation is to come up with a, an explanation that makes sense mm -hmm. that you can imagine might be right and then stop there that's kind of a very pseudoscience kind of a bit sigmund well, freud isn't it just taking each thing on its own merit and not really comparing well, it basic, or having a control you've got some basic principles about how life works so yeah. what my guess would be mm -hmm. it's a guess it sounds very convincing, so that doesn't mean, but that doesn't mean to say it's true. My Indeed. guess would be is that the female may be able to, may be testing the male. Oh, okay. How strong are you, mate? Mm -hmm. Can you? Oh, how persistent you, are you? Yeah, how, how persistent are you? If I keep on saying no, how much are you going to go? How much do you want it? How strong are you? How we're coming back to the same thing as with the robins. It may be that the females, who of course are going to invest much more in the birth of the babies. Of course, that's a big difference, isn't it? I mean, males usually, well, in a yeah. lot of cases, are just providing some sperm and yeah, then buggering off. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, and even if they're mating for life and they're, they've got some kind of social existence coupled together, the female's physically investing more because she's actually going to be pregnant. She's going to be carrying the damn things mm -hmm. for all that time and putting all that energy into building the, the next generation. So the argument goes, and this is kind of orthodoxy, but may well not be true. Mm -hmm. The argument goes, therefore, that female, that's why, in general, females are choosy. 
uh, they have fewer gametes, so that's their half of the, it's, that's their eggs. The males, on the other hand, produce bazillions of sperm yep. and can, in many species, just do it as often as they want. And they mm -hmm. just get, So all comparisons with humans are, of course, completely unjustified, but very tempting. But if you look at enough species, you can make general yeah. comments yeah. and you so see trends. My guess about the hares would be that the females may well be actually trying to test the males. Yeah, because I suppose if you are um, being persistent, you're not foraging, you're out in the open where there's potentially predators. So actually, yeah, you're showing them that I can do all this stuff and still be healthy. Yeah, alive, and yeah. So there's a lot of argument about, and I mean, this is the kind of idea that's been floating about for about... 40 years now mm. um, about how these weird behaviors pop up and it's very satisfying mm. but very difficult to test experimentally i mean you can run computer models and see whether it works or not yeah but models always work that don't yeah, they? Exactly. that's the problem yeah, with models. Yeah, models it's whether just, they yeah. match what's going and, on well yeah <laughs> and the problem is that in reality as people who work on complicated models know all models are wrong but some are useful. Mm -hmm. So then they've got to be wrong because they're not as complicated as the real world. So they're never actually going to fully express it. Anyway, the point is testing it experimentally, which is really one you want to do, is rather difficult either to sometimes to think of uh, how you could actually test the idea and then secondly actually doing it. So if you can't even think of how you could test that idea, what prediction you would make that would produce a different result, then that suggests that maybe what you your explanation may or not actually be scientific it may just be a kind of general kind of framework that we're working with and it's oh so easy to do that kind oh, of, yeah, make those yeah, kind of yeah. conclusions yeah. you know you yeah, it's just so stories you know like the radio yeah. kipling just so stories like indeed that's why the elephant elephant got its trunk because the uh, the crocodile was pulling on its nose in the great gray green greasy limpopo just because it's getting a bit lighter and we Absolutely. maybe feel a bit nicer about things because it's not so dark it's still pretty tricky things haven't warmed up yet it's not really till you get to what end of may june when things are really yeah absolutely. a land of plenty yeah. or becoming a land of plenty so remember the beast from the east was in late march early april and it was awful yeah what is it is it um easter monday is the snowiest bank holiday in, in britain gosh well when i were a lad Aye. in 1975 mm -hmm. in june Mm. It snowed. No I grew up in Cheadle Hume, which is uh -huh. near Stockport. Yeah. It snowed. And uh, there was a cricket match involving the West Indies taking place at Buxton, and that was called off because of snow. Because of snow. So climate change is, well, weather, weather happens, but you know, climate is changing. Yeah. But well, uh, it can let snow quite late on. Spring these days comes around about 11 days earlier than it used to when I was a kid. Yeah. Yeah, it's getting earlier and earlier. And what's happening is the animals are finding a hard time tracking that, the organisms. So we said earlier on that they're linked to the... They can tell when the days are getting earlier. That's not changing. So the length, day length is going to be constant. That's their main cue, isn't it, yeah, day length? absolutely. Yeah. So they're getting ready to you know, start to be active or, or whatever. But they're now finding that... So, for example, organisms that are... Uh, what you can call cold-blooded, that rely on the heat to get warmer, they're going to start getting warmer, because the temperature's getting warmer, earlier than they are. their brains and their bodies are telling them to. So they're going to be out of sync. If they're <clears throat> tracking particular flowers, then they may well find that the flowers have already flowered by the time that they emerge. Because the flowers are, 
plants and or animals are going to use a slightly different way of responding to mm -hmm. temperature and the plants are going to be coming earlier which is one of the main sea signs that we have of yep. spring coming so they're emerging earlier and the animals they may well have lost you know, flowers that may be relying on or often using insect pollinators the pollinators may not yet be about because the clock and the temperature aren't quite in sync in their bodies so that's they're all awfully confused so Mm -hmm. what's called phenology that is the study of when things happen mm -hmm. uh, and one of the great things about phenology is that it's not something that scientists actually study because it's very difficult because you need decades worth of data so we yeah. rely upon people writing this down in their diaries when did I see the first swallow or whatever mm -hmm. and so people should keep diaries if only because in 10-15 years time those data are actually really useful or log on to one A of big the meta-analysis <coughs> yeah yeah. There are those data sites that do about you know citing birds or whatever. Um, where and when you see them, the scientists need those data to be able to work out how exactly climate is climate change is affecting wildlife. But it is because it's getting earlier and uh, spring's mm -hmm. getting earlier and earlier because the temperatures are, are warmer. And although we were saying before that behaviour is adaptive just like anything else on an animal or yeah. other living thing, any other trait. It's, this is going much faster than anything can yeah, adapt it's, to. Absolutely, it's happening very, very quickly. So, normally you'd expect that if an animal wasn't quite able to meet some slight change in temperature, well, it would leave less offspring, and the one that was able to respond would leave more offspring. And so, those genes that were more flexible or enabled a more flexible behavior would tend to predominate in the population. But this is happening so quickly, mm. this climate change, that it's almost certainly not animals aren't going to be able to respond that quickly natural selection can't sift between the varying characters and so what we're going to see is well what everybody notices some animals are just starting to disappear sparrows how many sparrows have you got in your back garden well indeed it's just very depressing it's depressing just how tangible it is now yeah absolutely. it was i mean i know when i was i guess in high school in the in the 90s we were talking about global warming then it was all kind of very theoretical we were showing maps of what Britain would be like mm. and it's like oh god it's all true <laughs> it's all true put another log on the fire it's all true <laughs> that's what seems to be happening <laughs> I was going to mention stoat attacks just because what, have you heard people? of stoat attacks back in the day there's not there's probably too few stoats and weasels knocking around these Sad days it. I did see one on Chilton Eves oh, did you? saw a weasel they're uh, so cute. Just once. Oh, I love them. We turn around and there's this little weasel boppling across the, the path. Yeah, because it kind of ties in with the foraging in groups when it's mm -hmm. the depths of winter for birds, then going territorial in the spring. It used to happen with stoats and weasels, and they were just running to town like locusts. They'd run through towns, through uh, fields, and people would have to climb trees with I their don't dogs. This. this is true. And they climb up with their well, dogs. How do you know it's true? Because I read it in the Fortean Times. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, that's not Which bad. Which is, it's, they're I usually, mean, well, these, the history ones are usually well-researched. They're not, I mean, obviously the bits about does sound a bit like, you know, and there wasn't some geezer with a, a red and white suit and a flute at the front. Yes, indeed. No, indeed. No, they, they, they just went, and I assume it was just hanging out in groups because many eyes find food. Mm. Just a couple of pairs of eyes. So I'm just very you were in the 14 times, weren't you? I was, I was, because of our field course in the mm. foothills of the Alps. Um, what was it? I can't remember. Well, we f it was it was very it was to do with food, so it's very good. Good. It was an egg. All oh, right. Well, we're on message. We're on message. It was, about it was an egg, 
and the students uh there's duck pond where we used to go on this field trip mm -hmm. uh, in june july and the students found an egg at the bottom of the duck pond they were in, the, in their wellies they were collecting daphne or something anyway they found this egg and they then brought it back to the lab where we mm -hmm. were working and they then poked it the leg was egg was apparently intact they poked it mm -hmm. and inside the egg, I the remember egg now. were three large minnows crammed in there right. and they started freaking out people like us would have said well yes uh, sometimes uh, sometimes fish can come from eggs i duck big eggs i mean that's not actually what was going on but you should if you so Google, what was going on there well, i'm not telling you what <laughs> i'm not giving it out you gotta work the it secret. out oh you gotta work well look so clearly the fish weren't in the egg from the very beginning no right, right. And fish do not normally come from an egg. So sure. I've given you, there's a word that I used. People have to play it back. There's mm. a word that I use, which is absolutely fundamental in saying, gives you, you a clue. Have you to told what, us the answer? Yeah. Well, I've given you a hint. You have to, and people can write in and I'll, I'll tell you. In the next okay. episode, I'll tell you what the answer is. And we're going to leave it on that cliffhanger. You really are going to have to tune in next week to find out what happened. A big thanks to Matthew Cobb. If you're interested in finding out more about Matthew's work, he was recently on Radio 4's The Life Scientific. He's also got a new book out called The Idea of the Mind, released this month, March 2020. And another book about smell, which is part of the excellent Oxford University Press's A Very Short Introduction to series in May 2020. I've put up information on the website with links. You're going to have to find your own duck penis images though. I've also put up a link to the 14 Times website in case you want to see more of that. If you're interested in weirdness of any kind, it really is the publication for you. Well, I hope you enjoyed the nature episode of the podcast and have learnt some new things. Next week is Mothering Sunday, so we'll be looking at that. Where I have another chat with David Walker, Bishop of Manchester. I look at Lent, diet and health, and I go on a fast of my own. If you have any comments, questions or queries, please find me on Twitter at Neil Buttery or on Instagram, Dr. That's D-R underscore Neil underscore Buttery or email me at Neil at BritishFoodHistory.com. My blog, BritishFoodHistory.com, has loads of posts with recipes from Britain's past. Click on the Lent tab to find out more information on the things covered in the series. The producer for this series is Bina Katani and it's a Sonder Radio production. Have a great week and I'll see you next Sunday.